Good morning, church. All right, our scripture this morning is Psalm 131, 1 through 3. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, I just uh, thank you first for all the fathers and father figures in this space this morning. I thank you, God, for how you are the perfect father. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless the fathers and father figures here today and um, that you would continue to guide them, um, that you would impress upon their hearts to lean upon you, to know how to father those who you have entrusted into their care. I thank you, Lord, for the scripture. I thank you, God, that through the scripture, you impress upon us the greatness of who you are in comparison to the smallness of who we are as your creations. I pray, God, for your wisdom to fall upon Josh as he leads us through the scripture and for your blessing upon this time and this fellowship and as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it working? It is. Technology. Love it when it works. And I get infuriated when it doesn't. So I'm really glad that it's working right now. Um, wow. Okay, so if you were sleeping earlier or if you're just now tuning in on the live stream, once again, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the big cheese. That's Cameron. Cameron is the head pastor here. I'm just the associate. Um, but Cameron is actually off on some much-needed vacation. He actually, it's a vacation that he had planned to take. Well, I think he had planned to take it two years ago, last year. But last year was like COVID, no one's going anywhere. <laughs> so he didn't get to take it last year, so he's taking it this year. And that's why you're seeing me two weeks in a row. So you're welcome or I'm sorry, depending on how you look at it. Um, Another thing I wanted to say is, uh, in, in addition to introducing myself to you, uh, is that I still don't know a lot of people in our church, and it's not your job to fix that necessarily, but if you want to know me, I, I do want to know the people I don't know, and if you would like to know your associate pastor, the little cheese, I guess, if you'd like to know your associate pastor more, I would love to get to know you. So. Come talk to me afterwards. I, I try and find people, but I realize that my memory is so terrible, I can only really remember maybe three names. So if I try and find everybody after service, I'm going to forget everybody too. So um, email me, joshwilder at dwarfhopepdx.org. Hopefully I say that like 10 more times. It's just going to be like, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night saying joshwilder at dwarfhopepdx.org. Wesley, we should create a jingle with my email in it that'll just get stuck in people's heads. But get a hold of me if you would, if you would like to uh, get to know your pastor or if you would like to pick a bone with me about some of the things I say up here. I can definitely be wrong. And maybe you could straighten me out. But either way, uh, whether it's all in good fun, whether it's friendly or whether it's like finger wagging at me, I'd like to get to know you. So feel free to get a hold of me uh, if, if that's your pleasure. Um, the other thing, I was just thinking as... Um, 
as, as Grace was praying about fatherhood and his Father's Day, and I was thinking, you know, there might be people here or people listening who are fathers, or mothers for that matter, who have, um, who have kids that are, let's say, less than well-behaved or, or less, um, not the people that you wanted to raise them to be. And um, I just wanted to say, you know, God, God's the perfect father, and he still has rebellious kids. So take it easy on yourself. Um, nobody is perfect. Nobody gets it all right. And even though God, who does get it all right, uh, he, he, even though he gets it all right, his kids still rebel. So please uh, take it easy on yourself. Um, the Lord knows what he's doing. So that's totally aside from what I'm going... Well, actually, it's not entirely. You'll see. Um, just by way of review... We, ha- we started the book of Mark in February as a church. We started working through that. We got about two chapters in uh, until we started this series on the Psalms. We wanted to just take a break. We were going through pretty slowly, setting the plow fairly deep. Um, but we're going through the Psalms, and we're taking a particular angle on it. What we're doing is we're not going, coming to the psalmist and saying, you are the experts in theology. We're going to sit at your feet, and we're going to learn theological truth from you. Rather, what we're doing is saying, you know how to relate to God. Teach us how to relate to God. Um, so we're not coming and saying, like, picking apart, like, all the nuances of, of theology and the things that, that the psalmists are saying. What we're doing is saying, what is the psalmist doing with, with what's going on in their life? How are they taking whatever's going on in, the, in their circumstances and whatever's going on in, deep down inside of them, whatever's boiling up, how are they dealing with that by taking it to God? And how could we do that with our own life, with the, with the hot magma that's going on under the surface? And sometimes that's, you know, rage, and sometimes that is praise. Sometimes that's wonderful, uh, joyous gratitude being given back to God. So we're taking each week... And we're looking at sort of a, a different way that psalmists go about this. So uh, I think Cam- Cameron did an introductory sermon, and then he, he did one on what are called imprecatory psalms, which is a fancy way of saying, when you're really ticked off at other people and you're like, God, I want to take revenge on them, but probably you should instead of me. Um, what do you do with like this, this rage uh, at other people and how they contribute to the mess of the world that we're in, particularly to you and people you love? So what do you do about that? And then last week, I got more into, like, what do you do when you feel like you've gotten a raw deal in life, and you're not necessarily angry at someone else? Maybe you're angry at God, or maybe you're just grieved over the fact that your life isn't where you want it to be, and you're saying, do I really deserve the life I have right now, God? You know, did I really mess up like this? Uh, Sort of like the why do bad things happen to good people sort of thing. So if you, uh, if you want to hear about those sort of things, you can go to our website, you can go wherever you get, download the podcast, or go to the YouTube page, and you can get a hold of those things if you want to do some catching up. So this week, uh, however, I'm going to talk about something that probably we all deal with, certainly in the last year you've dealt with this, um, but we all deal with it from time to time, and some of us more than others, and that is anxiety. What do you do with anxiety and feeling, well... I guess you just say sort of overwhelmed with life. How do you deal with that? I found a, I found a meme in the next slide of Michael Scott. Didn't get much sleep last night, but I got a few hours of anxiety in. 
in that us sometimes. Uh, that's, that's what we do. We don't sleep. We just get our hours of anxiety in. And you may, um, you may not know what I'm talking about, or maybe you do. You might feel like things are getting worse for yourself and for the world around us. Um, maybe, um, maybe there's more people anxious than there ever were before. Maybe the anxiety level is like higher than it's ever been before. Maybe, the, maybe you're starting to think, well, maybe anxiety is the norm, and there are just like these gaps between episodes of anxiety, and those are getting shorter. Uh, Any way you look at it, the statistics actually bear this out. I found um, the latest study I could find for the United States was taken from 2008 to 2018. So this isn't even taking into consideration the last three years, okay? So whatever these statistics are, use your imagination. I bet, I bet everything is like up from this. So um, this was self-reported, like in the last month, have you felt anxious or whatever? And so for, in general, for all adults, <clears throat> it was up 30% from 2008 to 2018, 11 years, it went up 30%. Now, the worst of that was 18 to 25-year-old category. That went up 84%, 84%. That's almost twice as much as like 10 years earlier. They're twice as anxious. They're anxious twice as, for twice as much as their life almost. And if you're 26 to 34, it was up 34%, which is kind of like close to the average overall. And if you were over 35, then you got off pretty, pretty well. It was fairly negligible. 35 to 49 was 8%. And uh, if you were over 50, it actually went down. That's interesting. I'm not sure. Congratulations, congratulations if you're in that category. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe after 2020, it's like everybody's went up. Even if you're over 50, it didn't go down probably. Um, so... What explains this? Well, I think we've had low-level anxiety for a long time. We experience this all throughout the day. We just don't realize it. And I think, in some ways, this is just a first-world problem, you know? Like, you go to the grocery store, and you're like, there are 2,000 different kinds of toothpaste. What one do I get? You know, like, it's just, it's not a big deal, but, like, we have a million of those every single day, and they kind of just stack up. And then you throw something else in there, and it just, it just tips the whole thing over, probably. So I, I think also, remember the, the dates for this study, 2008 to 2018. So, so think of this time period. Uh, 2007 was when the first iPhone came out, right? And only, like, the Uber nerds got them, <laughs> right? But then by the next generation of iPhone, we all had them. We all had them by like 2008, 2009. Everybody's got them, especially young people. Young people all have them. The people with like the, the worst end of the statistics, they all got them. Yeah, so, uh, so I think smartphones might have something to do with it, and, and social media probably is a, is a big part of that. I think I have, if you go to the next slide, uh, there, yeah. The seven deadly sins of the digital world. You notice all these things here. Lust is Tinder. Gluttony is Yelp. Greed is LinkedIn. Sloth, Netflix. Wrath, Twitter. Envy is Facebook. Instagram is Pride. My wife said that Facebook and Instagram should be inverted, that, that Envy is really the Instagram thing and Pride. I, I don't know, because I'm not on either of those, so I just don't know. But I saw this. I, I thought, that, well, this is, this is interesting. This actually... Um, I think that this is like a pretty good grid for our day, for what we think about and what causes our anxiety. I'm not saying that social media itself is, is, is the problem, but this is a good, a good way of illustrating the problem. So, so Tinder, Yelp, and Netflix, I think, all occupy 
a category of our life that's essentially pleasure. Like, we, we want to be happy. We want to experience life. We want to have the vitality and the richness of life. We want to have, you know, an experience. We want to feel something. We want to be satisfied. We have a basic human need to experience life. And these, these three help us with that. Now, I, I assume that most of you are not on Tinder. I mean, if you are, you probably should talk to me afterward. Let's talk about it. But, but you could put a dating app in there instead. Um, not necessarily for the seven deadly sins. I don't know if lust is the reason why you're going on a dating app. But, um, but it, the dating app, the finding of a relationship of a, of a mate, of another person, also fits that category of pleasure. And these also, also these three have their dark sides, right? Like you can, Yelp is really helpful in finding a really good restaurant where you have a really good meal and you really enjoy it. You don't waste your money on, you know, second-rate food or whatever. Um, so, so it's helpful, but they also have their dark side, right? Because now it's not like you feel like you got a raw deal if you didn't have the best food out there. And if something doesn't have Yelp reviews, you're like, not trying it yet. Not going to do it. Got to wait for the enough, enough five-star Yelp reviews before I'm going to do it. So all, all of these, even Netflix, you know, we, we've got 10,000 things to stream. But you know what? They don't have this, that, and the other, so I better get Amazon Prime and Hulu. That way I have 100,000 things to stream. And then still, how long does it take for you to find the thing that you actually want to watch? And when you get done watching it, you're like, did I just waste two hours? There were 10,000 other things I could have watched. And I just wasted two hours of my life. So you see how like the anxiety sort of builds in the, in the fact that these have a tendency to sort of promise to offer you the best experience. They, they promise to give you the best of what's out there. Even, even let's just take the dating app, right? So the dating app, uh, it's like, well, you're more likely to find your spouse, right? Because you create a profile that really shows who you are. So you kind of skip the awkward process of like taking two months to figure out that the other person isn't who you thought they were, and then, like, and then you got to start over. Like, this skips that process, right? Because there's this whole profile there. And not only that, but it, like, it pulls in people outside of your social circle. So your odds are up. The pool is way bigger. So it should decrease anxiety, right? Except for it doesn't. It doesn't decrease the anxiety. Because tomorrow, there could be the perfect person that gets on there. Like, there are a lot of people that that I probably could spend some time with, but you know what, there might be, there might be just the one who's gonna come out there tomorrow. So like 100 years, ago, when you, when, 100 years ago, when you lived in your town, you went to high school, or maybe you had a rival high school in another town, like you knew you're gonna marry someone from your hometown or from like one or two towns over. And so you gotta make, make your move quick. You know, you gotta commit quick, otherwise like everyone that you want is gonna be gone, and then you're gonna be like, oh shoot, I'm stuck. Or you maybe gotta move somewhere else. You had fewer options, but somehow, like, the, the sense of needing to commit was actually greater. And so it created less anxiety, because once you commit, then you're done. And that's the problem with these, right? Like, once you commit to the restaurant, I mean, maybe you'll sit down and be like, yeah, this isn't what I want, and walk out, you know, and just walk out. But once you commit, there's always, like, the better brand of jelly, the better brand of toothpaste, like, oh, I missed it. I should have gotten the other one, whatever the other one is. So these create anxiety by having like unlimited options. Unlimited options actually don't help. <laughs> and then the other ones, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
These are all, uh, I, I think that these all tap into that human instinct, that human need just to be, to be recognized, to be heard, to be known, to be loved, to be validated, to be affirmed. You know, we, we, we want people to see us and to see what we do and to accept us and to love us. And that's all good. That's, that's not a bad thing. We do, we want all, my point is we want all this stuff without social media. That's what I'm trying to say. Social, social media is, is a way in which we, we feed the same need that we had before it existed. But one of the things that social media does is it, it provides, like all these LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, these are all essentially platforms where we can perform for one another, where we have, we can, we can put ourselves out there put a sort of performance, and I'm not saying it's disingenuous, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, even when it is genuine, though, like, you're putting yourself out there, so you could get praise and applause, affirmation, love, but you could also get rejection. You can also get totally ignored, which is another form of rejection. So the fact that, like, you're on trial all the time, and either you're going to be affirmed as, like, somebody that people love or you're going to be rejected as somebody that people don't pay attention to or people hate like that's going on all the time now it's not just like oh when you get around your friends or when you get in front of these people like then you're on trial of whether or not people like you like now it's all the time so that's the shadow side that's that's the dark side of social media and like i said like i'm not throwing shade on social media that is not the point um, because even if you don't, even if you don't engage in social media, there's still, like, still plenty of reason for anxiety. All these things give, like, promise us to meet a deeply felt human need, and they can do that, but they also can, like, give the exact opposite of satisfying that need, which creates extra anxiety. So, once again, not throwing shade on that, because we got all these problems even without social media, right? For, on the one hand, like, you have the anxiety of, I always have to have a mask on me all the time, because if I walk into a building, or if, um, if I'm around somebody else, you ask me to wear it, like, I just need to have it, I gotta wash my hands all the time, or, you know, I gotta feel like I'm judged because I'm always wearing a mask all the time, or I'm judged because I'm not wearing a mask, and, you know, like, that creates anxiety. And then, of course, um, there's the anxiety for those who are finding work, who've been out of work for a long time. And so you're trying to find a job. You're like, I'm sick of getting checks for nothing. I want to actually do something and earn my paycheck. And then you have other people who are like, yeah, that's fine, getting free money. I don't want to go back to work. But now they're saying, I have to. You know, so there's anxiety about having to go back to work because I was having fun playing Xbox or whatever it was that I was doing. Uh, with, with the money I was getting from the government. So there's anxiety for that. Or maybe you, you pay attention to the news cycle, you're really locked into it, and you see what's going on in the world, or at least you see a version of what's going on in the world. Or maybe you're locked into all the news sources, so you're seeing a hundred different versions of what's going on in the world. Whew, that's, you're going to be really anxious. <laughs> I imagine you're going to be really anxious if that's you. Um, but there's plenty to be anxious about. You know, what about the housing crisis? I thought that when COVID hit and like things were getting bad and there's downtown is all boarded up and like people aren't going to want to move to Portland, the housing market will go down and I can actually afford to buy a house. No, it's going up. 
It's still going up. It's, it hasn't plateaued. It hasn't even stopped going up. It's still going up. So I have the anxiety of like, well, maybe I'll never buy a house. I guess I only need it as long as I'm here. You know, when you're dead and you, and you meet Jesus, he's not going to be like, whose name was on the deed of the house that you died in? He's not going to do that. But still have anxiety over it because there's this pull in our culture, like you need to buy a home, you know, like you need to own your home or whatever. Um, you know, what about homelessness in the city? That's everywhere. What about downtown being boarded up? What about the riots and the protests and the counter-protests and the racism and the police? Like, what about all these things that are going on? Like, am I, am I woke enough? Am I, like, resistant to wokeness enough? Um, there's, there's so many um, things where we're like, I don't know what to do. There's so much happening, I don't know what to do. It reminds me, there's this book that I was reading called No One Is Talking About This. It's a, it's a novella, really. It's a small novel, and it's about uh, a, a woman who, who puts on social media, um, she, she puts this post on, on Twitter or something that says, like, can, can a dog be twins or something like that? And she just blows up. She becomes like a media sensation. And if you're wondering, like, why in the world would someone become a media sensation for tweeting something like that? That's the irony in the book. Like, that's the whole point in the book is that it's, I, this is the whole irony of the whole thing. But w- there's a part in the book where she's like, she's like, um, she's in therapy because she knows that she needs to hate the police, but she doesn't actually hate the police because her dad's a cop. And so she's like, oh, my therapist is like more, is like, is better at this than I am, you know? It kind of like, that exemplifies the sort of anxiety that we have in our time. Like, what should I be doing? Like, what, what do I really do here? So forget social media. Like, there's, there's plenty. There's plenty to uh, be anxious about, from buying toothpaste uh, to getting the buzz, getting your buzz going or keeping the buzz from fading, whatever it is. Um, there's plenty to be overwhelmed about and to feel anxious about. And uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm the only one feeling this. But um, the writer of the psalm here knows what it's like to feel anxious, to feel overwhelmed. That's essentially what this psalm is about. So let's, let's have a look at it again. Um, Okay, here we go. Psalm 131. We're just going to work through it slowly. So the very beginning, here it says, Psalm 131, a song of a sense of David. So in our Bible, verse 1 starts with, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In a lot of other translations, verse 1 is the superscription, a song of a sense. So when you're reading the English Bible, you're tempted to not pay attention to that first superscription. You should pay attention to it because that's also part of the Bible, and it's important what's there. So this says it's a song of a sense which the songs of ascent uh, are something that scholars are endlessly debating about. Like, what is it that holds this collection of poems together? There's like, I think, 20 poems. What is it that makes all these songs of ascent? And what does, what does ascent mean? What does that actually mean? So there's debate. It's constantly going on. So if you want to have a lucrative career <laughs> in like Old Testament study, there's your PhD thesis. Come up with another another version of what you think it means. But what there is agreement about is that all of these psalms employ spatial imagery. They all have to do with motion and location and dislocation. And some of that is physical. It's like, I want to be in Jerusalem, or I want to be in the temple, 
or I want to be with my people, it's relational, or it's spiritual, like I'm dislocated or disconnected from God, and I want to be where God is. So it can be, uh, it can be physical, it can be spiritual, it can be relational, but either way, it's always some kind of spatial imagery. And um, here's what one scholar says. Uh, he says, to be off-center, so his, his way of talking about location is like on-center and off-center, okay? He says, off-center is to be in negative space, to experience distress, illness, persecution, moral failure, divine judgment, to live in the presence of enemies, even in the face of death, far from the presence of Yahweh. To be at-center is to be in positive space, to experience harmony, health, peace, reconciliation, to live in the presence of Yahweh and kin at harmony with the community of the faithful. So these, these poems all have to do with trying to get in that right space, trying to get in that right location, where God is, where you're at harmony with the universe and with your maker. So this psalm employs a certain kind of movement. So let's look at the first stanza here. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So if we're going to go ahead and keep using this spatial imagery, look at, look at how he moves through space. His heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And then the third one, I do not occupy myself. That's not, that's, that's a, decent translation, but the, the word that's used for occupy is to walk or to go. Like, I don't go around. It, it really means kind of like to walk around in a circle. So to occupy yourself, you know, be mulling it over is, that's a good translation. But you miss, you kind of miss that spatial imagery I was talking about. So I don't walk, I don't walk about, I don't go about in the things too great and too marvelous for me. So I want to take a moment and look at and sort of nerd out on the Hebrew, so forgive me if you're like, if, if your eyes roll back in your head, take a nap and come back <laughs> in a little bit. So if you want to go to the next slide here, I think that, uh, okay, next one. Oh, these are like fade-in ones. I don't know how I got it to do that, but I don't like it. I need to figure out how to change that. <laughs> so uh, there are two words here. For, for the heart being lifted up, the Hebrew word there is gavah. It would be G, B, H in, in English. And then the, the second one for raised is the word room, uh, R-U-M, is how you would transliterate it into English. And it, what's interesting about these words is this. So this, this first one, gavah, that word is used, when, when that word is used of a human being, it is almost always used negatively. When a human being says, I'm going to gavah, or it says this person, you know, this king was Gavah in his heart. It's pretty much always bad, like you know something bad is going to come. The word itself is neutral. It actually, uh, it, when it's not used of people, it's most often used in like agricultural things of like something growing taller. So, so being raised up or being lifted up has to do with growing. But when humans do that, it's like they're, I'm growing myself. It's a negative thing. It's a bad thing. And the second one, room, uh, that one is not agricultural, particularly. It can be everything. It can be like the sun ra raising. It could be somebody like going from sitting to standing or somebody lifting someone else up. Um, but in this context, you know, raising the, to, to, to raise your eyes is to put yourself on an equal footing with another person. So to raise your eyes to God is to like say we're equals. And 
this word too, room, when somebody rooms their self, that's almost always a bad thing. So if we go to the next slide, I think I have a few examples here. Yeah, okay, so Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart, that is Gavah, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And then Second Chronicles here, but Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him by the Lord, for his heart was proud, his heart was Gavah. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, and this one has both of them here, the last one. The haughty looks, the gavah looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride, the room of man, shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So you can see how I'm, I'm sort of building the case for like when humans take on this gavah space, that's a bad thing. But what's crazy is when these words are used of God, especially gavah, when it's used of God, it's almost always a good thing a right thing, a positive thing. So if you go to the next slide, here again in Isaiah, but the Lord of hosts is exalted, is gavan justice, and the Holy One shows himself holy in righteousness. It's a good thing. 55.9, you might, you might know this verse here. For as the heavens are higher, are gavah than the earth, so are my, are my ways gavah than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what's the point? My point in saying all this is that this space, this gavah, this room space, that's where God is. That's where the ruler of the universe is. And when a human being places themselves there, you're going to start having anxiety because we were not made to be there. That's God's space, not ours. We are actually ourselves becoming lords of the universe. And this is the, this is the initial temptation, right, in the garden. The temptation in the garden was essentially that um, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And they fell for that temptation. And we might say, well, I don't do that. But, but kind of we, we do. <laughs> you know, like uh, how, often, how often do you come to God with, like, with the little things in life that you're like, I got this? Is... is is God really Lord over, like, the, the little things? And how do you even know what the little things are? Who gets to decide? Are you the Lord over what's little and what's big? When you can handle life, when you can handle it, you're like, I got it. Do you say, Lord, how do I do this? How do I do the thing that I already know? You know, maybe if you're a professional, maybe you've been doing the same thing for years and years and years and years. Do you still say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. You know how to do this better than I do. Or have I gavad myself into God's place in terms of whatever it is? You can fill in the blank. Now, God has given us, you might be thinking, well, hasn't God given us like some measure of rule and, and lordship over our own life? And my answer to that is yes, he has. God has done that. He's not going to chew your food for you. But remember, you are like a, a, a lowercase r ruler in that degree. And the line between the lowercase and the uppercase, like we like to sort of stretch that a little bit and end up in God's space. And my point in saying all this is that when we do that, we're going to create anxiety for ourselves. We're going to actually um, bring harm upon ourselves. So here's a question. I, I have a few examples written down here. I don't want to skate over them. 
not to put too fine a point on it, but is Jesus Lord over your sex life? Uh, what if you're married and God wants you to take a break? Can you be Lord over that? I'll probably get some bad email for that. Actually, it's Portland, so people are pretty passive-aggressive. Maybe I won't get anything for that one. Um, is he Lord over whether or not you get married or whether or not you marry somebody who you're, like, really attracted to? What if it's not an eight or nine or even a seven or a six? Does he get to be Lord over that or you're like, I got this, Lord. I know who I'm attracted to. Lord, you made me this way. I know. What about your career? What about any sort of advancement in life, right? Is he Lord over whether you can now afford to move into a better neighborhood or a bigger house? Or whether you do the upgrades on your house? Or whether or not you take that extra vacation? Is he Lord over that? We live in a culture that sort of pushes us to constantly be on the advance, to get higher and higher on the pyramid where fewer and fewer people are. Is that where the Lord wants us? Does he get to be Lord over that? Or are we like, I got this, and when I need you, I'll call you? Or, or here's the one that I really struggle with. Are you too big for your britches? That's how, that's a saying from where I come from. Are you too big for your britches? Do you spend time stewing over what's happening in the world around us? Are you constantly criticizing the people who make decisions? Lord, help whoever that is. Do you have debates in your head with people that you don't even know <laughs> who say things? Do you have debates in your head? How, you're, how you, If you were right there, right then, at that time, you would prove them wrong because they're wrong and you're right. Do you have a plan? Do you have like a solution to, to racism, to nationalism, to homelessness, to gentrification, to clean energy? You know, do you have, do you have the answer to all these problems. It's possible that, like me, you're occupying yourself with things that are too great and too marvelous for you. They're too big. They're very big. And uh, I'm not saying we never work on these kinds of problems, but um, there is a space, there's a place that we can go into that is not made for us. It's made for God alone. And we crowd into that space, and we do so, when we do so, we create extra anxiety for ourselves. You were not meant to fix all the problems of the world. You were not meant to be the big cheese. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying anything to Cameron when I say that. <laughs> You're not meant to be the big cheese. I'm reading what I wrote down, so there you go. Uh, you were not meant to win the rat race. You were not meant to have a life that other people would envy. And you don't have to take my word for it. In fact, you don't even have to take the Bible's word for it. Just think of all the celebrities, all the people who are successful, kind of at the top of the heap. How many of them check into rehab? How many of them lose it, go bonkers? How many of them OD? How many of them are addicted to substances? How many of them die of suicide? We weren't made to be godlike. I was, I was watching a documentary last week on the Bones Brigade. I don't know if you guys know who the Bones Brigade is. They were, it was a team of skateboarders in the 80s. And one of the guys on there, Rodney Mullen, 
he's probably one of the best skaters ever, technical skaters ever. He's probably invented like half of the skateboarding tricks that there are. And he used to win like every single competition, hands down, no problem. And one of the things that he said in that was that when people get peppered with praises, when, when people hit you with even little praises, you get enough of those stones thrown at you, the weight of it becomes like the weight of a tombstone around your neck, and you can't handle it. And not that he went bonkers, but he, like, he couldn't compete for a while. He was like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. So even, even our successes can create anxiety. So the thing that you might be chasing after, that you're anxious about, that you're trying to alleviate, like that very thing could be the thing that actually gives you more anxiety, not less. So, what's the alternative? Well, let's go on to the next stanza here. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Here the psalmist says, I'm taking a break. (laughs) I'm not going to keep trying to figure it out. I'm not going to play the game and win the game. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get off the treadmill. Actually, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew word here for calmed is the word that means to make something smooth or level. So think about like your blood pressure spiking. It has to do with flatlining. It has to do with laying flat. And that is the only active verb in here. That second one, I've calmed and quieted my soul, that's actually passive. It's emphatically passive. So it's more like I have calmed and have been quieted in my soul or I'm being quieted in my soul. So he's actually really quite passive. He's said, I'm going to just stop and get level. And in doing so, I'm going to be quieted. And he's going to be struck dumb, but this isn't like a gagging order. It's not like God saying, shut up. His illustration here, I mean, you don't need to get into the Hebrew for this. His illustration is a child being weaned. And if maybe for you, you've never had this, or maybe it's been a long time, but for me, this has been pretty recent. I have a 14-month-old, and I've seen her having to be weaned. It's interesting what happens when mom is no longer the one feeding baby. Let's just say her, because I have a daughter. So she sits on mother's lap, and she cries and cries for the breast. She wants to have this thing. And, and really, like, it's not just for nourishment. It's for comfort. A lot of it is for comfort. I want to be comforted. Give me what I want. And being weaned uh, means that mom has to do what looks like a really, really difficult, like, obviously, as a dad, I don't have to, I don't have to deal with this. From the outside, it looks, it looks awful. It looks horrible. You have to 
hold your baby and not give her what, like, just let her sit there and cry and not give her what she really wants. And she doesn't understand. She doesn't know what's going on. Like us, oftentimes, like, we spin our wheels. We occupy ourselves with things. Like, we don't understand. We know what's going on. But God, like us, knows that what, what the child needs is to be weaned, which is to no longer need, take comfort in being fed, but to be comforted just by being with mom. Mom herself becomes a source of comfort, not what mom is going to give her. And that's the same thing with God here. He's not spinning his wheels and saying, give me answers. This is what I got to have. Crawling up in the lap of God, being actually weaned. Because you're not weaned until the point where you're no longer saying, like, give me milk. If you're still saying, give me milk, you're not weaned yet. So the psalmist is saying, I am quieted so that just simply being in the arms, being next to God, that, that is what will settle my soul. So, what does that mean for us? Now, some of you might be saying, that sounds great because I need a break. But uh, some of you also might be thinking, you know, this sounds like this is really passive. And don't you realize that there are a lot of people in this world whose life is really awful and they can't wait around and be passive? They need help right now. This sounds an awful lot like an excuse to sit on your hands and do nothing. This sounds like telling the privilege that they can enjoy the luxury of their privilege and they don't have to do anything. So if that's you, I don't know if that's anybody in this room, I don't know if that's anybody watching this. I just thought maybe somebody out there might be thinking that. So I just wanted to address that real quick. So the first thing is, yes, I I actually agree. There are a lot of people who have a lot of needs. They have a lot of things going on, and they can't afford to just sit around and do nothing. Um, They need help. But remember the context of this psalm here. I'm not talking about a sort of life philosophy in general of, like, doing nothing your whole life. We're talking about anxiety. How do you deal with anxiety, with your own anxiety? How do you deal with your own anxiety? So I'm not saying you should never, like, do something. I'm not saying we should never get out there and help the oppressed, help those who are poor, help those who are less fortunate than us. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think the Bible's saying that either. And the second thing is, the people who are, who you're talking about, who are oppressed, who, who can't afford to do nothing, actually, they're the people who probably have more anxiety than others of us. And I actually think that they need, one of the things they need to do is do what, what he's doing here. And that is like, to find their rest in God. Because we can always be screaming. Our mouths, our mouths can, can scream, I need food, I need affordable housing, I need, um, I need opportunity for advancement. And that's true. But the deepest cry of all of our hearts is what I had said before. Remember that whole social media paradigm? Like, what we really need is belonging and security and agency. And I would love it 
if society at large or the government or whoever could, could simply just provide that for everyone. But it won't. And even if it did, governments come and go. They don't last. So I'm not saying we don't need to work on those things, but I am saying, like, this is a good prescription. Whether you're at the high on the hog or down at pig's feet, this is a good prescription for dealing with your own anxiety, which brings me to the third thing, which is those of us who are, um, whose life is not, like, horrible in the dumps, and you can always look at somebody whose life is better than yours and say, like, oh, I'm, I'm, on, this, I'm on the poor side or whatever. I think it's all the more important for us who, who feel the need to advocate for other people. I think it's all the more important for us to go here with our anxiety because I suspect that very often what people do is they take their anxiety and they, to deal with it, they say, I'm going to advocate. And so you're not actually advocating for the people you say you're advocating for. You're actually working out your own anxieties and using someone else as a way to lift yourself up. And that does not do honor to them, and it actually does not help you with your own anxiety. So what I'm saying is this, is, this is what we should be doing. I'm not saying we should never hit the streets and get out there and advocate, like we should. But what I'm saying is it shouldn't look like the rest of the world. Like my, my, I suspect, and you can come talk to me afterwards. You can straighten me out if you think I'm wrong about this. But I suspect a lot of the belligerence that's going on right now in, in advocacy, a lot of that has to do with unresolved anxiety, unresolved insecurities, unresolved issues that people have, and rather than, like, going to Jesus, going to therapy, like, coming to those who need advocacy from a place of rest, from a place of security, from a place where you're there and you're available, um, that's the way that we need to advocate. And we won't do that if we're like, just make it happen. That's, that's actually, in the long run, not going to be... I, I firmly believe, G, the way Jesus did it was uh, slow and small. Slow and small. He got a few people, they did grassroots stuff, they made it happen. And that's not to say top-down stuff does nothing, it does do things, but his method was like, he did what he did for the people right in front of him, and he instructed his disciples to do the same. I'm convinced that the most significant changes come when as many people as possible, which everyone can do, when you do the, the little thing that's right in front of you, the thing that is not going to make it into the news, and it's not going to make it into the history books, the ones that humans write. But you know what? God's writing a history. And he remembers. He will see all the little things that the news will not and the history books will not. So I'm saying all, all, all these things just if... If you're like, hey, you're saying be passive, don't do anything, like the world has problems, but just like sit back and trust Jesus. We're talking about anxiety. We're talking about dealing with your own anxiety here. I think that we have, I don't have time to go into that, so I'll talk about it another time. <laughs> I have too many things to say, as you may have figured out. Okay. So Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we have a peculiar intellectual disease in our world. We kind of think that we're like the, um, we're like, you know, those little, those little vacuum robots? 
in people's houses. I don't know if you've ever had one. I had a friend who had one. And the little thing, it's got like the little, the little fan thing that goes around. But they like cruise around, they map out your floors, they cruise around everywhere, and then like they have some sort of mechanism that figures out their battery is low. And so they like, they turn around, they, f- they know where the charging station is in, and then they plug themselves in. And once they're fully charged, they're like, they kick back out and they're doing their thing again. We want to think we're like that with God, like that we're battery operated. You know, we need to, like, we need God for the big stuff, so we need him to come through. But, um, but for the most part, like, God wants to charge my battery so that I can go do my thing. And the biblical view is that that is not what human beings are. We are not self-directed, self-defined, autonomous individuals. We are designed to have a cord and to be plugged in all the time, plugged into Jesus. The great thing about him is that he is mobile. (laughs) He is mobile, so we can still get around, but we never get unplugged from him. But that's the way we kind of think about it. It's like, I got to do what I got to do, and like, where's God? Okay, yeah, go back and find him. Uh, No, he's always with us. That's how we're we're designed to always live in dependence on him. So um, that's what God wants. That's how God's made us. That's what he wants. He wants us to always be in dependence on him. He wants to run around with us. So how do we get there? What's the result? Let's go to the next slide. The last verse says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Oh, wait, that's not the last verse. Let's go to the next one. I might have screwed this up. Sorry, this is not the slide person's fault. Uh-oh, are we stuck? There it is. Okay, verse three. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So it's from this place. Let's, let's just go back and review. My heart and my eyes are not lifted up. I'm not going to put myself in the space where God is, the big cheese in charge of everything. He knows everything that's going on. Ah, I'm not going to occupy myself with that space, but I'm going to lay flat. I'm going to let him quiet me the way that a mother weans her child. And from there, he says, okay, Israel, my people, God's people, hope in the Lord. He doesn't say, okay, so from this place of quiet, I'm going to go get them. You know, like, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says, hope in the Lord, the one who has calmed and quieted his soul, the one who has weaned him. That's where his hope is. And there's always going to be a ton that we don't get, that we don't understand, and we have to live with that. That is really, really hard for us to do in a world where we think that if we just get the right information, the right technology, the right people in charge, we can solve every single problem that's out there. It's not true. It won't work that way. The Lord is the one who saves. So, where does that leave us? Remember those seven deadly digital sins and that they exemplify our needs, our deepest needs for belonging, for purpose, for security, for agency. If the psalmist found satisfaction for these kinds of things in the Lord, then probably we can too. And why not more so for us because we see that God has put his money where his mouth is in Jesus. We see that by his life and his death and his resurrection, he's offering true belonging by saying, I did all this for you. I did this for you. I want you on my side. 
doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. I want to take you and I want to calm your soul. Have you been rejected? I was rejected on the cross. Have you been alone, abandoned by your friends? I was abandoned by my friends. Are you powerless? I was powerless. I was nailed to a cross. And yet my father gave me a kind of power that nothing can take away. And I can give it to you. Now, if there's anybody here for whom this is something new, maybe, maybe on the live stream or watching this later, maybe this is new and you're thinking, how can this be? Or what are you trying to get out of me, preacher man? What does Jesus want out of me? I'll just tell you, Jesus doesn't want anything out of you. He wants you. So what it's going to cost you is nothing and everything. That's how it is when, when someone wants is you. You don't got to do anything. You do the lay flat thing. You do the receiving thing. You do the I'll let Jesus take care of me thing. But when he takes you, he takes all of you. He takes all of you. So it costs you everything and nothing. But as a lot of the people around here, if you're here today and you're wondering about that, as a lot of people around here will tell you it's worth it. It's absolutely 100% worth it. And that's the gospel. It's okay to be overwhelmed. It's okay to be small. It's okay to let God be big. It's okay to let him give you a break. So, don't be like this guy on, on the, I think it's the next slide. Don't be like this guy. You don't, you don't got this. You don't got this with your, little, with your little garden hose taking out the car fire while you hide behind the house, okay? There are, there are trained professionals to handle these things. Actually, there's one. His name is Jesus. Whatever it is in your life that's making you anxious, there's a trained professional. You don't got this. He is. You're probably actually in the way. <laughs> You're probably in the way. So let him have it. How would your perspective change on whatever this thing is? I'll end here. I'll end with this. How would your perspective change on it if, say, you believe that you were, um, you believe that your dad, your family, your dad was a million times richer than Jeff Bezos and a million times more kind and selfless and loving and charitable and giving than Mother Teresa. Imagine you're actually in a family where the person who really is the big cheese, the person who really has all the resources, endless resources and endless generosity and love and is willing to give it to you. Imagine that is your father. That's the family that you're in. How would that change the way you look at your anxiety? I'll leave you with that. I'm going to pray and ask Wesley to come up.